This week on Dig Me Out, it's a roundtable discussion on one-hit wonders of the 90s with special guests Andy Darer of The Andy Darer Show and Joe Royland of Sit and Spin with Joe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay! Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. It's episode 226. We are in season five, and we are going to do a roundtable discussion. Uh, This one, Jay, we're going to be tackling the one-hit wonders of the 1990s. Oh, boy. I know. This is a big topic. It's a, <laughs> a lot to get through. Um, we're going to go through each song and discuss its merits. Yeah. We're going to start with the first week of January 1990 and work our way through each week until we get to uh, December, last December. So you hear me snoring? Yeah, exactly. This is going to be a 36-hour podcast. <laughs> um, no, we're going to try to hit on some important aspects of it. We're going to try to define what a one-hit wonder is. We're going to talk about what our favorite ones, what our least favorite ones are, what the ones that have stood the test of time for us and ones that continue to annoy us and just riff a little bit on One Hit Wonders. To help us do that, we have a a rookie and a returning champion. Uh, our returning champ from the Windy City, the host, the author, the man known as Andy Dare. From the Andy Dare Show and the Andy Dare Podcast Network. Andy, how are you this evening? Doing great, guys. Uh, yeah, I think this means number five with uh, with you guys. So, yeah, I always enjoy doing your show, and thanks for having me. That means you get a uh, souvenir, custom-made <laughs> Matthew Sweet c- cat uh, made out of bronze. You'll nice. be getting that. that sounds to, good. Yes. <laughs> uh, as soon as he's uh, you know producing those, we'll get you one. Uh, and then joining us from the probably the farthest east and farthest north of anybody we've ever spoken to, from Gorham, Maine, which is outside of Portland, Mr. Joe Royland. Joe, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. So can you give us a little bit of your – we were talking before the show, just uh, your history um, with uh, music and, and 90s music and then what you're up to now? Oh, God. I, I've been a music fan all my life. I've lived all over the country, all over the world. Uh, I was an Air Force brat, so we traveled a lot. Then, uh, as far as music goes, uh, I've been sort of in and around the music business for the last 30-some-odd years, either uh, working in a music store, writing for music publications locally. Um, I've done stuff with radio. I've worked with bands before. Uh, briefly worked for the Red Ant label, talking about the '90s, that all for all of three whole months before they collapsed. And uh, these days, um, just for fun, I have a little page on Facebook, and I'm slowly getting it all uploaded to YouTube. And I'm on Twitter as well, called Sit and Spin with Joe, which is kind of just we review new releases, sometimes old stuff reissued. Things. So you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, and soon YouTube. And that's Sit and Spin, what that's with called? Joe. Yep. Sit and Spin with Joe. Cool. So we're going to get into uh, One Hit Wonders now. And I sent everybody a Wikipedia page 
That was the list of 1990s one-hit wonders, and they sort of defined a one-hit wonder in a... Let me start off by saying, they said there's actually no established singular criteria for what a one-hit wonder is, but they used what other people have said, which is typically a top 40 single on the Billboard Hot 100 Mm. is what defines a one-hit wonder. Um, So in that sense... 327 artists are one-hit wonders in the 1990s. Now, let me ask you guys. I'm a, I'll, I'll start with you, Joe, since you're the new guy. Um, yeah. Do you think that that's a fair, I guess, uh, restriction on one-hit wonder? Or do you think that there is a, um, a broader application of that term that can be used? I think it's it's kind of fair, but it's definitely a topic that's been up for discussions for me and my friends before. Like, you know, a lot of these bands have had songs that were uh, hits outside of the top 40. But I guess to truly be a hit hit, it would have to be the top 40 or above. Gotcha. Andy, any thoughts on that? Well, just that uh, in the 90s, you know, there was so much money behind record labels and so much money behind these hits that nowadays there's a new hit every hour, it seems like. And back then, you know, they'd give these songs probably six weeks on the charts and sell them to every, you know, MTV outlet. And uh, so hits were really hits in the 90s. Now a hit comes and goes every hour, like I said. So so there, there was one aspect of this that kind of made me question its validity, which was it had to have actually been... A, a released single, like a physical single, for it to be deemed a Hot 100 single. So if it was just an album track that, or or like the B side of a song, or or of an out or a, a B side of a single, or something that was like on a compilation, or you know, if it wasn't a physical single that was released, it doesn't get charted as a top 100 Hot 100 single. So there may be songs that we think of as one hit wonders uh, but that don't qualify because they were never actually released as a single yeah and i thinking back like i i don't know i i use it as a relative term you know to Mm -hmm. me if a song is on the radio and played in medium to have heavy rotation i consider it a hit so i I don't have any reference point of reference on a lot of stuff other than like this wikipedia entry on where it may have charted you know, so when I use the term, I usually use it to mean, you know, a band who had a single known radio track, you know, as despite or, or I guess not two or three or, or, you know, and they may even had a career, but, you know, are really known for one song that was that was on the radio in a prominent way. Now, let me throw this out to everybody and, and I'll explain why i'm asking was there anything about the list of the one head wonders from the 90s that was surprising to you or that you saw any sort of trends like one of the things i i noticed is that in the top uh of the list starting in 1990 and then going into 91 there was a lot of quote-unquote hair metal bands still having hit singles top 40 Mm -hmm. singles that i wasn't expecting to see like Faster Pussycat and Steelheart and, you know, those bands. And there's no, like, in terms of the pops, you know, the top 100 or or not top 100, the the top 40, 
um, it seems like there was still a an influence of that sound. Uh, well, a lot of people 90s. don't. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, a lot of those hits, the power ballad hits, were in ninety ninety one. I don't know for you know we I, we always want to associate that with the eighties, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was still going strong. And the the one thing I, I noticed that the other thing I noticed was just in general the year nineteen ninety three was bonkers. Like if you just look at the hits, the the one hit wonders in this list for ninety three, you got Dan Baird from Georgia Satellites. You've got a bunch of like hip hop that I you know never really appeared again. You've got stuff like Green Jelly. <laughs> you know you got Blind Melon. It's four down blondes. It's like all over the map. There's like 1993 seems to be a, just a year of like complete confusion. Joey Lawrence, you've got like this mix of like as pop as it gets and like straggler 80s stuff and weird novelty songs. And there's no real like when I look at that that year, I don't even see a presence of like a any of the alternative you know, bands that we that kind of are known for the for the decade <clears throat> um, in terms of the one hit wonders. The it's just it's just a bizarre year. It is Big a crazy Daddy year. Kang, too. I didn't even know Big Daddy Kane was still yeah. doing stuff in ninety three, right? <laughs> and head off top forty hit. That year <laughs> was crazy. that year was kind of a, a shift too in um, MTV because that was the year that like the real world debuted and uh, they had a lot more of like a lot of the bands were on unplugged and stuff so it was definitely a, a crazy time i would agree yeah i mean it is a crazy year you, tag team you have Oomp, t- well is. well you have whoop there it is and then uh two weeks later you have 95 south with woot there it is <laughs> without the parentheses <laughs> and it goes a little something like this Again, check it, direct it, let's begin. Party on, party people, let me hear some noise. DC's in the house, jump, jump, rejoices. There's a party over here, a party over there. Wave your hands in the air, shake the dairy, yeah. These three words mean you're getting busy. Whoop, there it is, hit me. How about this? Would 1993 be the apex of MTV, MTV's impact on pop culture? Would it I all be downhill so. kind of slowly yeah. from there? Yeah, I, yeah I feel that's like when their it programming is. changed. Is that the year you're saying that's the debut year of uh, Real World? Yeah, show? and then for there, yeah. that's so. From there, they started to move more and more into reality television and less about music. Right. When did they start doing like the spring break specials? Because I feel like this is around that time. That was because... Late eighties, too. Yeah. Okay. They were doing those, yeah, in the late eighties, and those were like with Polly Shore. Pretty... Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But they were pretty fandom. 93 was also like the the very peak and started the the, the, you know, the decline of grunge music too. So it had kind of come hit and now everybody's like, what are we doing now? Mm, yeah, that's right. It was like the second wave of grunge hadn't happened yet. Yes. With Candlebox the year later and, and all those bands. Bush exactly. and Live and all that stuff. Stone Seven Temple Pilots. Have you seen this footage of Scott Weiland? That was really <laughs> oh, sad to watch. Wow. Yeah. I've been on the whole thing of uh, Chester Bennington. I'm not a fan of Chester, and I don't like that he's fronting Stone Temple Pilots. But now, once I saw Scott Weiland in the stadiums, I'm saying Stone STP should just go ahead and use Chester. I mean, it looks like Scott's out of, you know, I don't think they can even use him anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. 
I've never seen anybody as obliterated as that on the stage. Like usually if you're that gone, you're like you'll just pass out. <laughs> but like he's in this weird state when of he, actually being able or thinking he's performing, but like <laughs> just physically not. When he capable. was on around 93 or 94 or five, he was a great front man. But so it's it's all the more sad to see the decline. Really. Agreed. So let's get into our choices for what were when you were revisiting this and and it doesn't have to necessarily be stuff that's on the list if you want to go with a broader definition but were there one hit wonders that i'm gonna start with you andy uh that you went back and you were like i still love that song or were there ones that you looked at and said that song still drives me insane Sure. Yeah, I made a list without even checking out the Wikipedia first, just to okay. see what would come to my brain. My number one favorite one-hit wonder in America of all time is Song 2 by Blur. Um, I think when that song hit, my mind was blown. I was already a fan, but I just pictured them as cheeky Britpop dandies, you know, speak doing these character studies about England and all that stuff, you know, the seamy underbelly of England. And then I heard this blat, this two-minute blast of punk rock grunge. And, uh, yeah, I was just, I, it was almost unrecognizable. And, of course, it was their biggest hit and their only hit in America, I believe. I mean, obviously, you'd go on to do gorillas and stuff like that. But I think a lot of people, especially in the middle of the country, only know Blur for song two, right? And they probably don't even know it. They just know it's the, the song that gets played at the stadium. The woohoo song. Yeah. yeah. And that song was so different from anything they had done before, too. Yeah, complete sea change. And, uh, yeah, I'm really digging the new Blur. I'm so glad to see that they've uh, been able to pick up the pieces and uh, do this new Magic Whip album. I love it. So, You know what's funny about that song is that uh, I remember hearing it at the, at the time and even for probably 10 years after thinking, wow, it just always sounded so huge. And now when I listen to it, it, I understand what's going on. They're just using a distorted bass, which has become really popular with a lot of bands now, like sure. uh, Royal Blood, for example. So it's kind of funny. Is in a way, it's kind of ahead of its time, like in terms of creating that big, thick, uh, distorted bass sound that uh, that you've seen in a lot of bands that are kind of relying on that now is like a, a two-piece or three-piece kind of presentation for doing like thick, groove-oriented blues sometimes blues based rock sure and it was totally not based on production or anything post edit mm -hmm. it was uh all just sounds like it's played live in the room and it's yeah that distorted bass gave it that heft i yep. love it what, what was one that you can't stand and why our lady peace i've said it on twitter i'm not a fan i it's whiny it's it's kind of watered down christian rock they won't come out and say it but they're it's kind of christian rocky and i don't know i just i've got what song two, uh superman is dead okay and just it's whiny it's just nasally it's uh it's just i can't i can't have you listened to the first record it. no maybe that's where i need to go is it the was that the second album or third album what was clumsy clumsy is the second clumsy second clumsy second so you're saying the first one yeah, Jay and, I, check out. Jay and I reviewed that a few years back. I think we both agreed that it's a really good record and it's a lot different than anything they did after that. They they pretty much abandoned their sound off the first record and tried to be a, a pop rock band, a much more streamlined sound. The first record so was that has, like 95, 94 or something? 
Uh, probably around 95, I'm guessing. Nice. I like Nin- that year for music. So, 94 in Canada, 95 in the States. There you go. Gotcha. Nice. I'm open to it. It's just that song just, I don't know, drilled itself into my brain. <laughs> the I, I, yeah. Isn't that the song where he does that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was right around the time that I think there was like, for some reason, there was a three or four year span. I, I felt in the 90s where there was always a song on the radio with the with the name Superman in it. Wasn't and here's there? a funny one I, I thought oh, I'd like yeah. to mention. How about Finally by C.C. Peniston? And I just wanted to say that name, C.C. Peniston. Remember that song? Finally, it'll happen. Then they just I'm, listen. I'm to look it, it up. You will know. <laughs> I just really is wanted it, to is say it Peniston. I think it's, it's probably Peniston. Peniston, but <laughs> I just like saying the name. I we hear that. Uh, Joe. <laughs> oh, uh, I've got a bunch, but uh, probably near the top of my list would be uh, Michael Penn's "No Myth." He's done a lot of records since, oh, but that's yeah. like the one tune he's really, really known for. Harvey Danger's "Flagpole Sitta." Good it's song. also a great blast. Like the first time I heard of the radio, I'm like, who is this? And I need to know when I need to have this record now. try to keep this short just because of the time constraints uh and uh folk implosions natural one which was probably mm-hmm. the best in excess song that they never wrote or recorded yeah that's a great one off the kids soundtrack yes jay how about you stuff you liked well i, I kind of have two lists i have stuff i liked at the time and then stuff i went back and and, and actually like now i guess i'll go with the stuff i like like go, now go with I, now because we're going to get to the next what you just mentioned okay i went through the the Wikipedia list and a couple other lists I found just to refresh myself. And some of the tracks that stood out to me as being, you know, really held up really well were uh, that Edwin Collins song, A Girl Like You. Just, yeah. I thought that was pretty, uh, pretty cool. Soundtrack. Just a weird sounding record for the time. And it struck me as the song that, uh, uh, sh- that retro band from the, from Chicago. Um, Urge Overkill. Urge Overkill, like should have written, <laughs> but didn't. Um, another one that, that, that stood out to me was uh, The New Radicals, Get What You Give. That's a song at the time I just paid no attention to and probably thought was stupid. But when I listen back to it now, I at least appreciate that that guy got Motown. And like you could, he was, you could tell that guy was a student of music. And I wonder what he's pop- up to now. Yeah. I don't, he I actually nothing. just uh, wrote all the music for the movie um, – Damn! Uh, once uh, begin again. That's the name of the movie. Begin again with uh, Kira Knightley and uh, that dude from Moon Five's in it too. But uh, and Mark Ruffalo's really? in it, I think. Yes, and Mark Ruffalo as well. Yeah. Yeah. Weezer too. He wrote a song with Rivers Cuomo too for her. Okay. For the album yeah, I think his dad was in the music business, if I'm not mistaken. So he kind of grew up in the music business. Yeah, I mean, you can tell just by listening to that and a couple other 
sampling a couple of songs from the record. That uh, it's a good album. Yeah, he, he's a student of student of music. And I guess the last one was Harvey Danger. Uh, it's like Joe. The thing that stood out to me on that one when I re-listened to it is I, I just remember that being like very like guitar heavy and distorted. And when I would listen back to it, it's not at all. I mean, it's fuzzy at the beginning, but there's a lot of acoustic guitars in it. And uh, I don't know, just my memory of the song is is way different in terms of the production of it. Um, it still sounds great. I mean, it sounds big and and full and. Uh, well produced but it's just my memory of it is, i guess was being a lot more almost uh punk from a production standpoint than it is but uh really smart song uh in terms of pop songwriting i also uh jay liked the um the new radicals tune that was one that's i, I think in terms of aging well i think it's actually aged well it's yeah. it doesn't it you know the the production on the song is not pinned to the 90s mm-hmm. um a couple other ones that i still f- hear them and i'm like that's a good song the full composure one that was mentioned and then um <laughs> even though it gets played to death and it's it's c- kind of responsible for or, or partly responsible for the whole rap rock uh thing of the 90s that went horribly wrong but faith no more's epic yeah. I st- that's a pretty amazing song and uh the fact that it got on the radio and was a huge MTV hit, kind of mind blowing. I mean, you never see anything like that in mainstream radio or anything like that in terms of um, MTV today. So yeah. that was one that I still have an appreciation for. I also have an appreciation for a lot of '90s hip hop, and I'm not ashamed to admit that I didn't. I didn't evolve on hip hop the way I did with rock music. I'm pretty much still listening to. Um, if I'm listening to hip hop on Sirius, I'm not listening to Shade 45 and the new stuff. I'm going to Backspin, and I'm listening to Skilo. I'm listening to uh, who else was from that time? Young MC. No, yeah, Young East MC Coast, would have, West Coast would have been That's 80s. Uh, Deuce with the Daisy Dukes. Uh, that song. There was like this run of like inoffensive, like. Daisy Dukes is a hilarious song, and I actually was just driving in the car with my wife, or we were listening to it. And the, the 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 chorus of of the song is, "I want you to," and then look at that girl with the Daisy Dukes on. And I'm like, that is so inoffensive of a rap lyric. <laughs> like, imagine if that song came out now. I mean, it would be you would not yeah. be able to play it on mainstream radio because it would be so graphic. And he's literally just like, I'm just pointing out. That that woman is wearing Daisy Dukes and that you should look at her. And that is basically the whole <laughs> chorus of the song. Yeah. <laughs> something charming about the innocence. Yeah, there is. <laughs> there's something. There's, it's very innocent. Yeah. Um, but I, I, Onyx with Slam, uh, Fushnickens, you know, a lot of that early 90s hip hop, um, House of Pain, Rex and Effect. I'm still in, uh, enjoying that stuff when it comes on. So I wanted to ask. You guys, Jay started to get into it, so let's go into this now. Were there songs at the time that you were recognized as one-hit wonders that you were like, this is this is crap, this is awful, and you have evolved on that? And I'll, I'll give you an example. Beck and Loser. I did not get that song when it came out. I did not understand what the hell was going on. I thought it was dopey. Fast forward you know 20 years later and the career that Beck's had 
I now get it. I understand understand what he was doing. But at the time, I didn't quite get what the hell was going on with Beck. Are there any examples of that where you, there are ones where you either you either got it back at the time and now you're like, what the hell was I thinking? Or ones that you did not get and you realize, oh, this you know, there are bands, for example, like The Verve, who are considered a one-hit wonder because of Bittersweet Symphony. But they're not, in terms of their overall catalog... Same with like Radiohead or or some other bands would not necessarily be considered uh, one hit wonder artists in the broader sense of being a, having a successful career. So Jay, I'll start with you. Um, anybody that you've changed your mind on? Well, I remember uh, Crash Test Dummies when that song came out, really liking it at the time, and now when I go back to it, I'm like, what? <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I just liked it musically, I guess, and. Uh, from a songwriting standpoint, but now when I go back, all you all I can focus on is the ridiculous vocal, and it's just something I can never listen to again because of that. I mean, in the flip side, I guess, like I said before, New Radicals is probably the best example I can think of. Is just a song I just thought was either forgettable or just didn't get it, and now I think I I do get it much better than I did then. Joe, what about you? You actually both kind of used my examples. I was going to say Beck, too. Um, you know, when that song came out, it was just kind of like, what is this? Uh, but over the years, I've really grown to appreciate Beck and see where it's coming from. And just like I like the fact that he explores different avenues. Like his last album was all pretty mellow, but it's one of my favorites by him. And also the New Radicals, too, at the same time. Like that was on my list as well as. Uh, at the time it came out, it seemed kind of goofy and stuff. But over the years, like I've gone back and revisited that album. The whole thing's great. Andy, I go with the Butthole Surfers with Pepper because mm, yeah. yeah, like it just came out of nowhere, and I was a little too young to know about their history. And really, they had been doing it for like 15 years before they even had that hit. And yeah, I wonder why they kind of imploded. But I'm sure you know drugs and inner band turmoil stuff like that. But yeah, that one. It took a while to grow on me, and once it did, then I revisited, you know, Independent Worm Saloon, Hairway to Steven, all that stuff. And then you get turned on to the Flaming Lips the same way, which had a hit a year before. They're they're pretty much a one-hit wonder. I mean, they had stuff in the last decade and stuff that kind of hit, but, you know, she don't use Jelly. That's a huge, huge hit that wasn't really followed up. It was more followed up by classic albums that were loaded with good songs instead of just one-hits. And the funny thing at the time is they worked that record for like almost two or three years before it became a hit, too. Yeah, it's the weird thing about the 90s is the amount of time that it took for songs to hit. Like they would literally work albums for two, three years when now they give you like your first week and see what it did the first week and then they'll drop you for the in two weeks. You know, well, that you guys just remind me of of another band, Um, uh, not a surf, like they're hit in the 90s. They're not. They're hitting the '90s. I was just scratching my head, thinking, "What in the hell is this? I don't get it at all." And then, after that, they became some of my favorite records. Mine um, too. Get to know more people. I think if you're ready to go out with Johnny, 
now's the time to tell him about your one month limit He won't mind, he'll appreciate your fresh look on dating And once you've dated someone else, you can date him again I'm sure he'll like it, everyone will appreciate it You're so novel, what a good idea You can keep your time yourself, you don't need date insurance You can go out with whoever you want to Well, let's talk about some artists that maybe have been unfairly tagged with the One Hit Wonder label. I think one of the people that I would point out is uh, Fiona Apple. Criminal is con- considered her only top 40 hit. And in terms of a career, I mean, I know she doesn't have a long career and not that many releases. But I think the first three records, that would be um, Title, When the Pawn... Etc. Etc. And then uh, extraordinary machines. Many years later, I mean, those are pretty extraordinary records, especially when the pawn. I think when the pawn is just an amazing record to listen to. Her songwriting combined with John Bryan, um, the production on that record. Are there other examples of artists that you think have maybe been lumped in with the one hit wonder crowd, but are not deserving so based on their overall career output? Start with you, Andy. Um, let me see what I got here. I would probably say Sublime. I mean, what really? I got was their only hit on this chart, but literally mm-hmm. they've got 20, 25 classics that, you know, will go down as classics forever. And yeah, the one hit wonder thing is weird because they had that one hit and then he passed two weeks after the album came out or something like that. So right. they really couldn't even enjoy it. I guess I don't know. I, I, I've never been a fan of Sublime, so all I know is that song, you know, what I got, and then... Uh... Well, the funny thing is they really only had two studio albums, 40 Ounces to Freedom, then they had that one that they did on the four-track, Robin the Hood, which was cool, lo-fi, you know, totally ahead of its time, too, with the lo-fi, just doing it on a four-track, and then the Sublime self-titled album. So really, you know, in their whole career, only released two albums. They've got millions of fans. So. Yeah, they seem to have tapped into, uh, like, a whole... Touring circuit of artists, I, I would almost put them with like, not the what would have been the horde tour, but what you know, like the jam band kind of. Yeah, that whole scene, tour. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of, but um, well, I like what they did was they took punk rock and melded it with with the jamming, with the reggae, and with the hip hop, lo-fi, experimental stuff, and uh, came up with something that was very original. He was a He's hands down a great songwriter. If you go back and listen to those songs, he was way, way ahead of his time. Joe, what about you? Who's uh, undeserving of the of the label? I would kind of agree with Jay on Not A Surf. And I wanted to make a point about that, too, that a lot of these bands that actually went on, like, say their their first song that they hit with was kind of like almost a novelty song. And that's kind of like the tune that they got known for. But everything else they did was just so much better than that. And if you go back and read up on some of these bands and some of these songs, a lot of times those songs almost didn't even make the record and the band didn't even really want them to make the record. You know, something like Deep Blue Something's Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, that song wasn't even supposed to be on the record, yet that's the song they get known for. Or you know, uh, not a serves popular or clo- uh, semi-sonic closing time. They'd be like three great albums, uh, but that's the song they're known for is closing time. And it's a, it's a cute little song. I like it and all, but the rest of their music is just so much better. 
And uh, their drummer, Jacob Slichter, wrote a great book called So You Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star that like talks about the craziness of what it was like to be in a, in a band that time and, you know, and uh, uh, dealing particularly with that, that climate of the time, you know, trying to have hits or trying to have a career. It's a great book if you've never read it. I read that many years ago, and I, it's something I've wanted to revisit because it's probably been like 10 years since I read that book. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely a good book to check out. Yeah, I found in the dollar bin a couple weeks ago, Trip Shakespeare. I knew that uh, it was Dan Wilson, his previous band. I was very impressed with that. And that was like 1989 or 90. So it took a long time for him to get his hit, you know. And it's funny now because like he's having most of his hits with other artists. Like he, he won a Grammy and most people don't even realize, but he's the guy who co-wrote, co-produced, played piano on Adele's Someone Like You. You know, one of the biggest hits from one of the biggest records in the last decade and most people don't even realize he did that. Uh, it's, it's just crazy. But Trip Shakespeare, too, speaking of uh, Matthew Sweet, who you guys just interviewed the other day, like they were the backing band on Matthew Sweet's first album. Hmm. I didn't even know that. That's awesome. No. Yeah, some people just don't want the spotlight. Once they get it, they realize, eh, it's not for me. Let me uh, write. Let me, uh, you can make money, just, you know, just as much money doing stuff behind the scenes and, you know have some peace and not be hassled all the time. Jay? This question reminds me of an interview I just heard with uh, Tom Worman. He's a producer from the 70s and 80s. He produced Cheap Shirts in Color and the biggest records from Twisted Sister and Motley Crue. And um, he sort of distilled down what his job was or what he viewed his job was for all these bands um, to be, which was get them a hit single. And the reason was, you know, he convinced all of them, if you just listen to me, I will get you a hit single. And if you have a hit single, that means you get to have a career, you know. So I think all the bands that were, um, you know, to Joy's point, even if they're novelty songs, they did enable these bands in some way to have some kind of career where they could sustain themselves and continue on, if they chose to, continue on and make records. So that, you know, that's, I guess, the... The flip side of, of some of these one-hit wonders is that they can quietly or not so quietly continue to go on and and be productive, be professional musicians, um, you know, not have top 40 hits, but still earn a living. So uh, the, the bands that stand out to me, three of my favorites were, would be probably considered one-hit wonders. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously I like all their stuff. Super Drag is one who's probably most known for Sucked Out, but went on to... Uh, probably not make their best record or my favorite record until almost 2000 within the Valley of Dying Stars. Uh, Hum is considered a one-hit wonder and you know pretty much anything they've done um, before that song and, and after has been phenomenal. And uh, another one I really, really enjoy is the, the Cardigans. I probably like that record the least of all the Cardigans records. Um, so, Love you know, Fool? Yeah. That's, you know, it's okay. You know, it's kind of cute and fun, but I think the um, Gran Turismo and uh, the record that actually they did in, I think, 2008, maybe 2010, uh, I just I think is amazing. Another band I, I came across in my research that I thought was interesting was uh, I mean, you guys are familiar with Better Than Ezra. And I think we all think of probably, uh, you know, good as the is maybe the hit song.
desperately wanting was was almost as popular. And when I looked at them on Spotify, neither of those two songs is their most popular song on Spotify. They had a song in 2014 called uh, Crazy Lucky that is more popular than either of those two songs. Hmm. I thought that was kind of funny that like you, you don't see that very much with these with these 90 bands is having a resurgence of any kind in terms of uh, pop. It's probably the singer of the band just clicking on that song over and over and over. He's like, no, this is our biggest song ever. <laughs> no, I, it kind of remind when I listened to it, it kind of reminded me of what Train does now, where they're just like, they've got it down, man. Like, <laughs> I, I hate those songs, but when you listen to them, you're like, God damn it, this guy knows how to write a hit song. You know what I mean? They're well like, put together, yeah. Yeah, he knows, like, in terms of pop music, he's got a great voice, and they'll pretty much do anything they you know if they'll do anything to have a hit song at this point and they just keep putting them out there and they keep charting so it almost when i listened to that song i was like oh, okay it almost had like a i won't say country but it would appeal to that kind of modern you know demographic and i kind of got why it was probably a, a hit in 2014 how about this for a band that's really much better than their one song space hog they were an amazing band from like '96 to uh, 2001, I'd say. Those albums are great. Uh, the Chinese album didn't have any hits, but it's got a song with Michael Stipe on there, "Almond Kisses." There's a lot of weird experiments. They were they were they should have totally been way bigger. They they should have had a better manager or something. I don't know what happened. They, they were great live too. Yeah, I, I dug them. Um, I, I guess I just I always I kind of viewed them as uh, inconsistent. I guess, and then just maybe a little too, uh, maybe too experimental. I don't know. The records always seem to be maybe a little too divergent at times for to find a fan base. Those first two really hold up, though. They haven't really aged at all in yeah. 15, almost 20 years since. So. I do remember the first time I heard that song. Um, I thought like a couple of verses in that it was a new Guns N' Roses song, just the way he sang. Uh, I was like, holy crap, is that <laughs> Axl Rose? What's going on? Oh, you're right. There's some similarities. Yeah. yeah. Like he does the same kind of nasally kind of, you know. Oversing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you guys, in terms of decades, and I'm, I'm going in this with some ammunition in my pocket, so I'm, I'm, this is a leading question. What decade or decades do you think have had the most one-hit wonders uh, as a percentage of their overall like weekly charts, anybody want to make a fa- uh, take a guess? I would have to say the '90s might have more. Uh, at least they might be some of the more memorable ones. But the '70s and the '80s have got to be up there too. Uh, and if anything, kind of like Andy was saying at the beginning, now there's like I think that's all the music business is is one hit wonders. Yeah, I would have guessed maybe to the. Maybe the '60s, just in terms of like early rock and roll, it kind of reminded me in the '90s where there was just so much music going on and so much money behind, you know, hit singles that maybe the '60s would be up there. And, and yeah, I've always thought there is a, a partnership with the '50s and the '80s and the '60s and the '90s. If you think about it, yeah. that just blow your mind for a second. Yeah. <laughs> But speaking of the 60s, we got to remember, too, that the 90s also brought us perhaps the ultimate movie on the subject of One Hit Wonders, which was uh, the movie That Thing You Do from 1996. That's true. 
And that song itself just missed being, uh, at least by the definition set forth by Wikipedia, just missed being a hit. It only charted at number 41. Ooh. Cruel irony. (laughs) Although it did chart higher on other charts, like the, uh, I think it was the adult contemporary and the mainstream modern rock hits, it it got higher. So where I was leading was, there's a website called waxy.org, and back in 2008, Andy Bayo, who runs the website... Uh, he was a guy who helped build Kickstarter. Uh, he and he, a bunch of other websites. And he put together called something called the Whitburn Project, in which he did a data chart of all one-hit wonders by decade and figured out the percentages of how many one-hit wonders each decade had. Um, so in the 1990s, 9.4% of the chart singles were one-hit wonders in the top 40. How much? In... Nine point nine point one four percent. Okay. The that's the third highest. Hmm. The second highest is the nineteen fifties at nine point nine seven percent. Okay. The number one decade for singles, and I was shocked when I read this, is the nineteen tens at ten <laughs> oh, percent. But here's the interesting thing. So let's just talk about the fifties going forward. We're gonna talk about rock and roll. 50s going forward. So I mentioned the 50s were at 9.97. The 60s actually dropped dramatically to 6.57%. And I yeah. think that's wise because in the 60s, you saw a lot of artists embrace the album yeah. as a concept. Yeah. Yeah. And that moves forward. Uh, 1970s is 6.89%. It almost stays flat to the through the 80s at 6.88%. And then it shoots up in the 90s to 9.4%. And then drops slightly in the 2000s to 9.07%. So really, in terms of the last three or four decades, the 90s have a clear you know, 3% advantage over the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and yeah. slightly ahead of the 2000s. Do you think that's because of the spending spree that record labels were going on trying to find hits, trying to find bands uh, with... You know the explosion of alternative music in the '90s, or do you think that was just a, you know, uh, some other aspect? Do you think there's another aspect that may have contributed to uh, the increase in singles, in one-hit wonder singles? I think it was it was that. I think if you look at the one thing I noticed that goes along with that, I think is um, production quality on some of these songs is incredibly low. Like the, you know, it's clear. Like these were potentially demos that record companies just rushed to release to get them out. So the songs I'm thinking of that I that I listened to and just was shocked by how low the production quality was was. Do you remember that song "Bitch" by Meredith Brooks? Mm-hmm. Like that just sounds like a four track demo. I mean, her vocal sounds fine, but musically, like that is Very like a bedroom. early Pro Tools. Yeah, yeah, it's just like a bedroom demo. Yesterday I cried. Been relieved to see the softer side. I can understand how you'd be so confused. I don't envy you, I'm a little bit of everything. I'll roll into one. I'm a bitch, I'm a lover, I'm a child, I'm a mother, I'm a sinner, I'm a saint. I do not feel ashamed. I'm your
Shine by Cleftus Soul. That sounds awful. Like <laughs> that was a demo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like it. It sounds, you know, it's small. It sounds like a cassette tape demo. That Primitive Radio Gods uh, song, which is a fine enough song, I guess, but and maybe it's not demo quality, but it, it definitely gets into you know this was an era where you could do like lo-fi drum loop based recordings really cheap and quick and right right, labels obviously didn't you know bat an eye at going ahead and throwing that stuff out so i think to your point tim yeah i would agree it's it's just an infusion of money but also just you know literally picking stuff up and throwing it against the wall as fast as they can yeah, I would agree with that too. And Jay made an excellent point with Collective Soul because, like, as I said, that that whole album was essentially a demo. That's pretty much just all Ed Roland. He had to go out and put a band together around the album after mm. he got picked up by Atlantic Records. Yeah, so they're just I, like, let's just get this out. <laughs> it's some at the time I didn't think that you know it sounded that bad, but now when I go back and listen to it, it's, it's shocking the, the fidelity of it. Yeah, I think I would accredit it it to. Um like the rise of the compact disc hit its apex, what, 97, 98 maybe, and uh, everybody could play these singles, just spent $2 on a CD single, put it right in your car, super easy. Everybody had a, had a car player, a CD player in their car. Discmans were all the rage, you know, probably hit their apex in the mid-90s too. So it was just like an easy way to listen to music that we thought, I mean, in the 80s it was a lot tougher. You know, you, you could get the cassette single, or that's about it. Listen on the radio because you're not going to bring your record into your car. So it was an this, easy. It was convenient. Yeah. Is this when they started this? There was an era of, and they may, they may see that, still do this. I don't know. There was an era of like super discount priced like CDs from places like Best Buy and stuff, where the yeah, hits yeah, of the week, which you could get for box. like five bucks. The big box yeah. stores really came in, in in towards the late '90s. Your Best Buys and stuff like that really started cropping up and doing that a lot yeah yeah so i remember look, in like 97 before then you would have to pay 1599 right. 16.99 and then all of a sudden i was into this new smash mouth song might as well be or might as well be walking on the sun another one hit wonder um right. and uh yeah it was 7.99 at circuit city right, and i go right. okay i'm going over to circuit city that is a steal i'm stealing the cd pretty right. much 7.99 and if you but, if you heard the single when you're in the store, you're like, hey, I heard that song. I like it. It's only, what, seven bucks? I'll, I'll go ahead and pick it up. You know, that's a whole different decision than if it's fifteen ninety nine or yeah. shoot. I, rem- I remember buying my first first CDs. I think they were like eighteen ninety nine back in mm-hmm. the early 90s, late 80s. It really stung 20 bucks with tax for one yeah. album. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there was one other big factor that the 90s had that the other decades didn't have, and that was the Internet. It was a lot easier to find out about these bands and get in touch with their music and hear. I mean, we didn't have Spotify or iTunes yet, but still had the internet. Right. The thing about Best Buy, from reading about that era, was they thought of CDs as a loss leader. They were actually selling CDs at a loss based on what it cost them to purchase the CDs from the labels. But they thought the, their thought process was if you come into the store to buy. XCD for five ninety nine. You're gonna walk out with a refrigerator as well. They oh, wanted nice. you to buy big, like big, big items. <laughs> See, I did the ex- I did the exact opposite though. I would go in there to buy like to browse headphones or you know what I mean, like a new CD player or something. And I would walk by the CD bin and I would see 
this section of you know hit records that were just deeply discounted and then i would you know pick up one or two on the way in or out you know this is prior to, to itunes popularity or spotify or anything so it's like this is the only way you're going to hear this music so i would well, do, i was doing the opposite which is not what they wanted no they didn't because they wanted to put in the flyer or or you know whatever advertisement they had 5.99 new releases that's the big that's the big glossy sell you right. get you in the store, and then you're in there, and you're like, hey, take a look at our new stereo equipment. Mm. And I remember go. the Sunday newspaper, you get the like the Best Buy fold-out ad, and I'd look right for the new releases. Always. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Best Buy, Circuit City, all of them. That would be like the first thing you would do. Like, who's got a cheapest this week? And that time from Sunday morning till Tuesday morning felt like an eternity, I remember. <laughs> Interesting uh, factoid that I just found out. The longest charting one-hit wonder of all time is Duncan Sheik's "Barely Breathing." <laughs> what? <Nice. laughs> yep. It stayed. It yeah. stayed in the top 100 for 55 weeks. Wow. Yeah. It must have been tied into a movie. Was it in a movie? Do you guys remember? Was that in a movie? <sighs> oh, I, I want to say it was that. in a, some sort of movie soundtrack. Romantic comedy or something. Yeah, yeah or, or something. He had other songs on soundtracks, but I don't remember it being that one. All right. Maybe it was, maybe they get it just like got kept a lot of those songs would get used in trailers when they got popular. They weren't that's necessarily true. in the movie, but they got they were using the trailers for movies. I guess cuz that song can be played on like what do you call it? Top 40 and even like adult contemporary and it can be played on alternative radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a true crossover song. Uh, Love line with Dr. Drew and Adam Carolla. If you, I remember hearing a lot of one-hit wonders be guests on that show, and uh, yeah, Duncan Sheik. Like my buddy does a a lo- classic Love Line where he's playing all the old tapes that people taped off their radios, and uh, yeah, Duncan Sheik was last week's guest from like '97, and uh, not a nice guy, but. He had a good voice, and yeah, 55 weeks on the charts, not bad. But like the sneaker pimps were on one week and got pissed at Dr. Drew, tried to tell him something medical, and uh, didn't like that Dr. Drew would throw it back at him, so they left, and they walked like four miles back to their hotel or something. (laughs) Okay. Do you guys want to take a shot at what the most common words are in One Hit Wonders? Or not words, but in in the titles of the songs? Oh, uh, excusing words like the and a and in just take a random guess at what what what's the most common word in a one-hit wonder this is probably kind of obvious uh love yep that's Heart. it love is is it goes the you i and love are the top four song top four words <laughs> then then uh me in and my you don't. You don't even actually get to like a non, you know, a, an unusual word until you get down to um, little is the next ah. one, and then you get to like baby, heart, time. So it's a, it's actually a joke here. The guy said if you wanted to write like the ultimate Diane Warren hit single, it would be called "Love My Baby Blue Heart." <laughs> nice. I, actually, I was going to bring this song up, but I'll throw it in there now. And you said in the early '90s it was. Um, kind of shocking to you that there were still so many 80s bands hanging around. There was a 
guy named Kane Roberts, who was the guitar player for Alice Cooper for a while. And he mm-hmm. did a record in 91 and he had a top 40 hit. And when I looked at the, uh, the song, it's called, does anybody really fall in love anymore? Which was apparently first, uh, recorded by Cher. But what's interesting about it is that it was written by Desmond Childs, Diane Warren, John Bon Jovi, and Richie Sambora. <laughs> nice. And it was a hit in 1992. It had to be expensive to get all those yeah, writers. <laughs> Jay, if you had turned to uh, page 53 of the book Power Ballad, yeah, a definitive guide to hard rock softer side in paperback and book. Kindle, uh, you would know all that information that you just said because it's yeah. on page 53 of that book. Why didn't you bring it up then? Well, I wasn't expecting that Kane Roberts to come up in this particular discussion. Well, we're doing one-hit wonders of the 90s. Hey, is the that song? on Amazon? Or? It It is on Amazon, both nice. in paperback and Kindle. Check it out. <laughs> I know that's your book. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Nice. Uh, yeah, it was a, it was Cher. Huh. And also, he, on the cover of the album, he's dressed like Rambo. He's actually done a few albums, believe mm-hmm. it or not. Yep. I think he was more. No, this album cover is more low key, Tim. This is the black and white cover where he's right. just wearing a, like a t shirt and a leather jacket. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're thinking gotcha. of the, the, the other first one. Was, one. Uh, 1988, I want to say. Yeah. Gotcha. I think we're we're getting po- to a point here where we should. Um... You da- You haven't done the, the ones that we hated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we should wrap up with that. Uh, what burning hatred do you still hold <laughs> for for one hit wonders from the nineties? For me, it's uh, it, it all comes down to "Wicked Game" by Chris Isaac. I oh. effing despise that song. I want to punch that song in the face. <laughs> um, I hate the jovial bounce of Tom Cochran's "Life Is a Highway." It's life is life is a highway. It's those are like those horrible like um, screen prints that people buy to put in their house of like life sayings. You know what I mean? Like they'll get like it'll be like a it'll be like a screen print on a canvas and it'll be like always keep looking up or always keep looking on the bright side because that's the best view or something like that. A like, yearbook quote. Yeah. yeah, it's like a horrible yearbook quote. That's Have what that song summer. is to me. Yeah. See you next year. And then. um the Verve Pipes, The Freshman, I... Oh, oh really? That song is like ch- nails on a chalkboard to me. It's so earnest and so... Oh. It's... Oh, God, I hate I kinda it. I kind of liked it when I revisited that. I like the album version, but not the single version. The single was a remix. It was terrible, and it just totally destroyed anything that was good about the song. Yeah, the album's pretty good, actually, but that song, no. So Let Your Hate Spew Forth... Andy, tell us something that you despise and want it to be dragged into the hell pit by the dogs of hell people. I don't know. Lou Bega. <laughs> yeah, not, not a big fan. Um, that was that was like October of 99, and that was pretty much when everything was going towards the 12-year-olds and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So Mambo number five, probably. Um, what else? Give us some rock, or, a rock or Dishwalla, Dishwalla, counting blue cars. Talk about Ernest. That guy thought he was just like rock god, and uh, I'm sure he thought it would 
the gravy train would never end for him, but it ended pretty abruptly, I think. So I remember I bought the Kasingle in 96, had to mow some lawns to get it, and I'm like, really? I don't know. The B-side was terrible, too. Not a fan. What do you have to say about that? I know you're a Dishwalla fanboy. Oh, I'm not a fanboy. But I did I, – I, I'm not angry towards the song. You know what's um, though is funny is that their cover on the um, Depeche Mode tribute album for the masses, mm. they cover uh, – what is it? It's off of um, Violator. We were reading- <laughs> Policy of Truth. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually bad. really good. Yeah. I will check that out because I love Policy of Truth. Their their second album would be a fun review for us. I haven't listened to it since it came out, but I think it's them trying to do Radiohead, <clears throat> OK Computer, which oh god, like the be better humorous. than Ezra did their OK Computer <clears throat> after OK Computer too. That How Does Your Garden Grow album, it's not a bad album. Oh really? Huh? They did a difficult dark one. Uh, what I despise, Spin Doctors, Two Princes. I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. That song just I if I listened to it enough, I would become serial killer. I don't think no. that's a one hit wonder though, because I think Two Princes and I also think Little Miss Can't Be Wrong oh, was top Christ, forty. And I, um, I hate Little Miss Can't Be Wrong even more. <laughs> they sound like the same song. <laughs> that's why I didn't even realize there were two different songs. They sound <clears throat> like the same song, so I don't blame you. If um, you want to come. I stumbled into the um, swing era of 90s music in my research here and just just a volcano came out of the top of my head. So the two that I pulled out that I just I despise at the time and listen to them now, I, even, I hate even more were Squirrel Nut Zippers, Hell, and Cherry <laughs> Poppin' Daddy's Zoot Suit Riot. How that shit got on the radio, I, I just it boggles my mind. You but can thank Swingers. Least, yeah, yes. Swingers. Oh, man, that was brutal. So stupid. <laughs> I bought the Squirrel Nuts Zippers album, and um, I, tra- I I heard the whole album, and almost tears came to my eyes after I realized I just spent 20 bucks on my <laughs> on Squirrel Nuts Zippers hot. And I took it back to Borders Books and Music out of the wrapping, and they said, sorry, we only accept sealed returns. And I really wanted the Chemical Brothers dig or dig your own hole and i was mortified that i had i was stuck with this putrid disc <laughs> yeah still i still got it though they pushed all that swing brian setzer orchestra and all that yeah. stuff got pushed that gap commercial i loved yeah. swingers i still love swingers it's a great movie but 
those bands just ugh, awful. I just don't get the like a new band writing in a old genre. I, I just don't understand how you can do that and like like yourself. <laughs> so weird, Joe. Joe, tell uh, us it, if I ever have to hear Chumbawamba's tum- something again, it'll be too soon. <laughs> Uh, that was kind of like the Dexie's Midnight Runners uh, Come On Eileen of the 90s. It was just <laughs> terrible. And uh, like OMC How Bizarre, uh, how, that, oh, how, yeah, bizarre wow. how that song ever got on the radio uh, or became a hit. <laughs> and I also had Lou Vega on my list too. Oh, here's a, here's a good one you guys may have forgotten about. Uh, do you remember the uh, Big Mountain, Baby I Love Your Way cover of the... Oh, uh, Why did you have to bring that up? Come on, that's Jay. That's one in my research. I'm like, oh my god, this happened. This really happened. <laughs> like, I can't believe I forgot about this, and it really happened. There's another one that goes along with that too, and the band was called uh, the Braids, and they did a kind of like reggae version of Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. No. And the amazing thing is, is that was uh, produced by Stephen Jenkins of Third Eye Blind. Crazy. <laughs> That was that was like one of the first things he did before Third Eye Blind got signed. Crazy. Oh. So besides inflicting Third Eye Blind on us, he inflicted that on the world as well. All right. Well. Oh. Well, I think we've reached a good point. We've exercised our demons here at the very end and let us let forth all of our uh, hatred expelled from our bodies, and hopefully we'll be <clears throat> uh, cleaner people on the. I feel like I, I need. I mean, I need like a mint or something sweet. <laughs> we just ate. We all just ate a big giant shit sandwich at the end of the show. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. You're gonna have to just keep smelling and tasting that. You have my banana sandwich. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so we should uh, wrap up here. We've hit our one hour mark, and um, want to thank everyone for the lively discussion on one hit wonders of the '90s. Of course, if folks want to chime in with their thoughts on most hated most liked all that sort of stuff please do so over at digmeoutpodcast.com uh, andy where should we be checking you out these days just the andy dare i've asked that yeah andy dare.com d-e-r-e-r um i do a weekly podcast uh this week i interviewed his name is martin atkins um drummer extraordinaire from like public image limited uh nine inch nails ministry killing joke whole bunch of stuff now he teaches classes about how to make money in the music business in 2015 he says there's no excuses you can't blame piracy you can't blame the downfall of the music business there are still ways to make money and uh yeah and i also write uh concert reviews and album reviews over at emptylighthouse.com excellent joe oh, yeah, where can we find yeah, you this week yeah this week i got manic street preachers uh it was a great show speaking oh, of yes. the 90s they did the Holy Bible over at the Metro in Chicago. First time mm-hmm. seeing them. They only played five dates for this tour. Now they're back overseas. They probably won't be coming back for years. Great show. And, uh, yeah, my review will be up next week. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, thanks for having me. Joe. Uh, you can find me at Sit and Spin with Joe on Facebook and Twitter and soon to be on YouTube, too, once I finally get the rest of the episodes uploaded. Cool. Th- thanks for having me as well. Absolutely. And uh, if you like what you heard, folks, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. Of course, if you have an album you'd like to suggest for us to review, head on over to digmeoutpodcast.com to our request a review page. 
For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out. I don't even know what's going on next week. Probably an album review. I'm so... Uh, Probably. I'm, yeah. I don't, know. It's, I don't know. It seems to be what we do around here. It seems to be. Well, you never know. Could be an interview. Could be a review. Might I'm even, pretty sure it's a review. It might even be a band from the 90s. Could be. Let's go that way. That's it. We're out. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. I love you.